Warning, this episode contains crimes against a child. It was a very difficult case for me to cover, but I believe it is a very important story to tell. Listener discretion is advised. Hey y'all, this is May, and I want to welcome you to Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. This is the finale for season one. This season, I discussed murders from the decade of 2000 through 2009. Today's story is one y'all helped me choose. So grab you some Whataburger and open that Dr. Pepper. Let's go back in time to the year 2006. We learned in episodes 16 and 17 how a preacher in 2006 faked his wife's suicide. In episode 15, we learned about a gang fight that broke out in 2006 that tragically had one teenager killed by another. But another thing that happened in 2006 was a very strange case of a four-year-old dying from salt poisoning. Please join me in walking down Erie Lane. Andrew Bird was born on July 28, 2002, to a 16-year-old girl who during pregnancy used meth, crack cocaine, LSD, and marijuana. She also consumed alcohol, took Xanax, and smoked cigarettes. Andrew's father was a 17-year-old who worked for a traveling carnival. When Andrew was a year old, his mother took him to the emergency room for a broken arm. While there, the doctor treating the boy suspected child abuse and notified CPS, or Child Protective Services. But the investigation turned up nothing, so Andrew was returned back to his mother. After this, however, came repeated evidence of child abuse, and CPS believed Andrew to be in immediate danger and was taken out of the home. At two and a half years old, Andrew is now living in the foster home of a woman named Sharon Hamill, who had been a foster mother for 31 years at the time, with having fostered about 300 children. She fostered Andrew for about 18 months before Hannah and Larry Overton, who attended the same church as Hamill, started to show an interest in adopting the boy. Hannah had a heart for orphan children ever since she was a teenager, when she would spend her Christmas vacations volunteering at an orphanage in Reynosa, Mexico. At 15, Hannah and Larry met. He was interested, but she had reservations, since he was going through a punk rock phase and had blue mohawk hair. She became interested a few years later, when they crossed paths again at a missionary training school, when she was 19 and Larry 20. They were married a year later and moved to Corpus Christi to start their lives together. Larry worked as a landscaper who installed lighting, and Hannah worked as a private duty nurse for disabled children and loved the work she did, and was reportedly very good at it. Past clients, whom had a son, Michael, who had been born prematurely and had cerebral palsy, explained how Hannah 
had a way with Michael that even my wife and I didn't completely understand, the father of the boy said. Then recalling how Michael used to chew on his fingers, a chronic problem that left his skin bloody and raw. The parents had tried all sorts of tactics to deter him, redirecting his attention, putting gloves on him, even restraining his hands. But only Hannah had been able to break through. When Michael put his fingers in his mouth, she would call his name softly. There was no anger in her voice, and he would smile and slowly slide his fingers out. We were in awe. But Hannah became pregnant and even went into labor at that client's home. She then gave birth to her first child, a son named Isaac. And although she had planned to go back to work, she realized she couldn't handle the separation from her son and decided to stay home with him. Sadly, the next two pregnancies ended in miscarriages. But then came along a daughter, Isabel, and soon after came daughter, Allie. After this, the Overtons conceived their fourth child, whom doctors believed would be born with Down syndrome. They decided to opt out of any more chromosomal testing and focused on prayer instead. When Sebastian was born, he did not have Down syndrome, but doctors did discover a hole in his heart, which ended up healing on its own. Hannah began to feel that tug on her heart for adoption again, the one that started from all her time spent at the Reynosa Orphanage. And although money was tight and they had four small children, they started to take this interest more seriously. In 2005, the Overtons considered adopting a nine-year-old girl who was deaf. But when they finally decided to move forward with the adoption, they learned she had already been placed with another family. This is when they heard about Andrew in their church. Every Sunday, Andrew would have the same prayer request, that he would be adopted. The Overtons' daughters, four-year-old Isabel and three-year-old Allie, told their parents that the new boy in their class needed a family. Can Andrew be our brother? The girls pleaded. After this, they were invited by a church elder to dinner to discuss the matter, and he encouraged them to consider bringing Andrew into their home. Hamill, the foster mom believed this to be a wonderful idea as well, as she would get to see Andrew grow up. But the Overtons were also warned of concerns of adopting this four-year-old boy, as the pastor of the church and his wife had considered adopting Andrew, but realized he was more than they could handle. And taken from an article in the Texas Monthly, Andrew's Sunday school teacher was more outspoken with her concerns and told the couple, that he was a troubled kid. He hoarded food and sometimes ate from the trash. She warned, and he threw intense temper tantrums, which could be tamed only by holding and rocking him. On several occasions, his fits had grown so extreme that she had resorted to asking a male parishioner to physically remove him from the classroom until he could regain self-control. Think of your other children she urged the couple. But Hannah wasn't too worried by the teacher's warnings, believing that Andrew would improve once he had the stability of a permanent home. 
telling her husband, all he needs is lots of love and attention. So the Overtons began the process of adopting him. Andrew was pleased by their interest in adopting him, as he enjoyed both Hannah and Larry and their kids. Adoption supervisor Anna Billows worked at Spalding for Children, an agency that facilitates the adoption of children in the foster care system, and was helping the Overtons in their adoption process and through the agency's procedures, which included an application for adoption, a home study, and PRIDE training. PRIDE stands for Parent Resource for Information Development Education. This training course is usually around 30 hours and involves some canned videos and discussions on a variety of topics such as effects of abuse and neglect, sexual abuse, grief and loss, attachment issues, and discipline. This information was found on a website called foster2forever.com. Foster parents in Texas are also required to have training on behavior, intervention, and other miscellaneous topics such as HIV, SIDS, shaken baby syndrome, and more. During the home study, Hannah Overton explained to Anna that she had a degree in nursing and also had experience in working with kids with disabilities. Although Andrew had not displayed any inappropriate behaviors, Anna still talked with Hannah about the agency and state's discipline policies and had her sign a document saying she understands those policies. The policy states as follows. The primary purpose of discipline would be to encourage appropriate behavior, not to punish the child. Children must be treated with respect and dignity. Discipline must suit the particular needs and circumstances of each child, and it must take into account the child's age developmental level, specific behavior, previous reaction to discipline, and history, including any history of physical or emotional abuse. No child may be deprived of basic necessities or subjected to cruel, harsh, unusual, or unnecessary punishment. Only adult caregivers may discipline the child. Children must not be threatened with the loss of placement as a means of controlling behavior. Physical punishment must not be used. Children must not be verbally demeaned or belittled. And after having just a few overnight visits, Andrew was placed in the Overton's home on June 16, 2006, on a six-month probationary basis. Andrew Bird was only two months shy of being four years old when he went to live with Hannah and Larry Overton. The supervisor stated in her paperwork that the Overtons are nurturing, loving, patient, and very family-oriented. Andrew seems very happy in this home. Around the same time their adoption application was approved, Hannah found out she was pregnant. They were very excited for this new journey their family was about to embark on. Andrew had an assessment done before moving in with the Overtons, and although it seemed Andrew had a delayed speech, the doctor cleared him of having any other issues. His transition into the Overton family went smoothly. 
at first. With initial signs of Andrew developing more fully developed sentences and loving having siblings to play with, Hannah and Larry noticed that Andrew acted more like a toddler than a preschooler. Such examples as, if he wanted an object, he pointed to it and grunted. And although four, he spent most of his time playing with Sebastian, who was two, rather than Allie, who was his own age. And his motor skills lagged far behind those of his peers. Another shocking thing they observed about Andrew was his obsession with eating. No matter how much he had eaten, he complained that he was hungry. And if he were denied a second or third helping, he would routinely throw a tantrum or get down on his hands and knees to scavenge the floor for crumbs. They had even caught him trying to eat cat food, crayons, toothpaste, glow sticks, tufts of carpeting, and when they would go out and run errands, they had to watch and make sure he wasn't eating things like old gum and cigarette butts he found on the floor. But they knew from the classes that they took that most foster kids have an issue with hoarding food and are more likely to have eating disorders. That, along with other adoptive parents saying this was normal and that their kids grew out of it, made the Overtons not very concerned. But things did not improve. They actually seemed to be declining, especially after a car accident that happened on September 19, 2006. The story goes as follows. The whole family went to the doctors to find out if Hannah was having a girl or boy. On the way home, as they were excitedly talking about the news of a new baby girl, Hannah had pulled down her seatbelt to better talk to the kids in the back. When Larry got distracted and ran a stop sign, colliding with another car, the impact being on the passenger side of the car jolted Hannah forward, slamming her face against the dashboard. She quickly turned around on instinct to make sure the kids were all right, not realizing her face was completely covered in blood, resulting in the children screaming. Hannah and the girls all felt they needed to be checked out for injuries, so they were taken in an ambulance to the hospital. Larry soon followed after his parents came to pick up him and the boys. They dropped Larry off at the hospital and then took the boys to Whataburger where Andrew continually asked, is my mom okay? <music> Hannah had to wear a neck brace for several weeks after suffering whiplash and a severely swollen jaw and spent most of her time in bed trying to recuperate. During this time, their finances were hit hard by this accident, as Larry had just purchased his boss's landscape lighting business and was stuck pulling long hours to make ends meet. So their community of relatives, neighbors, and members of their church pitched in to look after the kids while Hannah recovered. But this constant change of caregivers became a struggle for Andrew to deal with and the Overtons saw all his difficulties raise to a new level, such as scratching constantly at mosquito bites on his arms, still scratching even though Larry had put socks on his hands. He wouldn't stop, and even developed a staph infection on his arm. His tantrums grew more extreme, 
and he would bang his head against the floor often, and sometimes cry inconsolably for hours. Andrew's unusual eating habits also intensified, with him waking up at night to forage for food in the kitchen. Larry decided to show Andrew how destructive his behavior was one morning by allowing him to have as much food as he wanted for breakfast. Larry later explained, I knew it would probably make him sick, but I wanted him to understand why we were setting limits. Andrew asked for a plate of sausage and more than a dozen eggs. He ate all of this and continued with more until he threw up. But this didn't stop him. He still asked for more. Larry was shocked after this event, and he put a baby monitor in Andrew's room to observe him. They discovered that he would try to eat part of his foam mattress and the paint off the wall. Their next scheduled visit with the adoption supervisor was on September 25th. On this visit, Hannah explained all of Andrew's recent behaviors and reported his unusual eating habits. The supervisor suggested that Andrew might have an eating disorder called pica, which is characterized by a desire to consume things that have no nutritional value. She recommended that he be evaluated by a specialist if this behavior continued. But this recommendation didn't happen. Same as with the Overtons not taking Andrew to the doctor for his infected mosquito bites. Andrew did not have insurance. They attempted to get him on Medicaid, but were unable since they needed his social security card. But Sebastian also had an infected mosquito bite, and they did take him to the doctor, and he was given antibiotics to treat the wounds. Hannah said the doctor suggested putting Clorox mixed with water on Andrew's wounds to help with the infection. Although Hannah first tried to give Andrew some of Sebastian's antibiotics, a huge tantrum erupted, and out of frustration, she didn't attempt to give him the medicine again and instead used the home remedy the doctor suggested. October 1st, 2006 was a Sunday, and while Larry took the other kids to church, Hannah decided to stay home with Andrew to give him some extra attention. So they sat on the couch and watched cartoons together. Hannah ended up drifting off to sleep, and when she awoke, she found Andrew in the kitchen with the fridge door open and was unsure how much food Andrew had consumed. Hannah pulled him away from the kitchen, which infuriated Andrew, as he was still hungry, so she sent him to his room to calm down and that Larry would come talk to him when he got home. Hannah later explained that Andrew got really upset and he pooped himself and then smeared it all over the wall and all over the sheets and it got all over the mattress. Telling Hannah he did this because he was mad at her, she also stated that Andrew pooped at will. He would squat down and he would push until he pooped, and then he would throw it and smear it. When Larry went home and was told what had happened, he went upstairs to clean up the mess. Taking the mattress outside to hose it off and throwing the dirty sheets away in the trash can. But Andrew did not like this and kept going back to the trash can to take his sheets back to his room, making the mess worse. Larry became frustrated and took the sheets out of the garbage 
and put them on the grill outside and burned them. He then took Andrew outside and hosed him off as punishment. Here's a clip from when Hannah and Larry went on the Dr. Phil show many years later. Now, they also talked about signs of abuse in the home. Were you abusive with this child? No. In, in any way? No. No. What are you doing hosing him down in the backyard? I mean, it sounds like something you see in a movie about prisoners. He was filthy. I mean, he had smeared it, smeared his feces all over him. You have a shower. I do have a shower, and and in retrospect, I probably would have made, I would have definitely made that decision, looking at it from the other side. But um, you know, I just wanted to clean him up as quickly as I could. But you stand a four-year-old boy naked in the yard and hose him down with a hose. That seems harsh. It is. It seems it does seem harsh. And then the sheets that he had defecated all over, mm-hmm. you you burned them on the grill. Yes. You have to admit that seems odd. It does. I tried putting him in the trash can, but he kept going back to it. And just, and, and that was my solution to the problem was to, to burn them. Burn them on the grill. To burn them on the grill you, so that he could. Burn human feces on the family grill. <laughs> not the best decision, I, I would agree. In, in Did you not put them where he didn't know where they were? That afternoon, Larry's sister called and asked if the kids wanted to come over to hang out with their cousins. So all the kids, beside Andrew and Sebastian, went to her house and then ended up staying the night. Hannah, Larry, and the two boys went out to eat at a Mexican restaurant that evening as Andrew really enjoyed spicy food. But as soon as they got home from dinner, Andrew was complaining about hunger and wanted to eat again. So Hannah made him what she called chili which was basically beef stew with stuff added to it, like Zatarain seasoned salt. After he finished eating, it was time for bed, but Andrew's mattress was still drying outside, so the Overtons put a sleeping bag on the piece of plywood that normally held up his mattress and told Andrew that is how he would be sleeping that night. After 15 minutes of lying on the plywood, he threw a tantrum and ended up sleeping on the floor in the Overtons' room. The next morning, Hannah and the two boys woke up around 7 a.m. and ate breakfast. The three then went back to Hannah's bed to watch cartoons for about two hours. Larry left for work during this time, and Hannah ended up falling asleep, again waking up to find Andrew in the kitchen. This time, he was in the pantry, on a stool, being able to reach the shelf that had all the sugar, chocolate, and the spice rack. Hannah knew he had eaten something, but wasn't sure what it was or how much. She put him in timeout for three minutes. After this, Andrew complained that he was hungry and wanted to eat, but Hannah told him that they were going to wait until Larry got home because they planned on taking the kids to McDonald's for lunch. Andrew became very upset, threw a fit, and pooped again in his pants then grabbed the poop and threw it at Hannah. But after cleaning him up and changing his clothes, he pooped again and started smearing it all over the floor. Hannah later explained that Andrew told her, I'm going to poop on you, I'm going to poop on you because you won't feed me. She tried to calm him down, but ended up caving and fed him some of the leftover chili.
Child sex trafficking is a huge issue, and it is heartbreaking to know innocent children are being victimized in this way. But there are some great organizations who are fighting hard to bring these kids to safety and freedom, and the perpetrators to justice. Operation Underground Railroad is the one I want to support. They announced on Instagram on August 4th of the rescue of their 4,000th survivor. If this touches your heart and you want to do something to help, you can go to their website, ourrescue.org, to learn how to volunteer your time or donate. Let's stand together to save the children. Larry arrived home to find a huge mess and Andrew eating. So he cleaned up the mess while Hannah went to lay down and rest. At 2 p.m., Hannah and her son Isaac both had chiropractic appointments in which Larry, Andrew, and Sebastian tagged along. They stopped at McDonald's as they had planned, but did not allow Andrew to get any food because he had already eaten at home. After the chiropractor, Larry dropped Isaac back off at his sister's house and then drove Hannah and the two youngest boys back to the house. Once inside, Andrew walked straight to the kitchen and said he was hungry, but Hannah told him he had already eaten. Andrew started crying, so Hannah decided to allow him to eat some more chili, but this time she added more of the zatarain into the chili. Andrew took longer than usual to eat this meal, as he normally inhaled his food. Once finished, Andrew asked for more chili. Hannah told him no, and Andrew erupted in a tantrum, kicking, screaming, throwing himself to the ground, and stating that he was going to poop on Hannah. Extremely overwhelmed, Hannah called Larry to come home, but he was unable to get away from work at the moment. So she called her neighbor, explained a little of what was going on, and asked if she would be able to watch Sebastian at her house for a while so she could focus on Andrew. When Hannah came back from dropping off Sebastian at the neighbor's, she walked into the kitchen to see Andrew calmly sitting at the table. He looked at her and asked for a glass of water. Larry called at that time and Hannah explained that Andrew was calming down and they were going to take a nap soon. But after she hung up the phone, Andrew started crying and asked for more Zatarain's seasoning. No, you will need to wait until the next meal, explained Hannah, but Andrew just started screaming and screaming and throwing himself down onto the ground. After this continued with no end in sight, Hannah decided that maybe if she gave Andrew a little bit of the flavor of what was in the chili, that it would get him to calm down. So she filled a cup up with water and put just a couple sprinkles of zatarain salt in the water. But had the thought, maybe that was too much. So she poured a little of the water mixture into a sippy cup and handed it to Andrew. He grabbed the cup and drank all of it and then pointed at the seasoning asking for more. She obliged, but when attempting to pour more into the cup of water, Andrew knocked it out of her hand, making her wonder if she put any more seasoning in the cup before he grabbed it and started drinking again. He then decided this chili spice water was not satisfying enough and asked to eat some chili. 
And this is what Hannah said happened next. He threw the, well, he started throwing a fit and he went into, he, he was in the living room at that point, throwing a fit, throwing himself down on the ground again. Then he threw the sippy cup at me. And then he continued to throw a fit for about 20 minutes or so. He was throwing a fit and then he stumbled to the floor and he looked up at me and said he was cold and threw up. Hannah did not believe Andrew was sick as she just thought he had overworked himself while throwing a tantrum, but he kept mentioning that he was cold. So Hannah called Larry and told him he needed to come home right away. She then got some rags and started cleaning up the vomit and Andrew began to help, but stopped suddenly and started shaking, telling Hannah how cold he was. So she grabbed lots of blankets and wrapped him up in them. He wouldn't answer her when she asked what was wrong, but kept mentioning how cold he was. She ended up wrapping more blankets, a sleeping bag, and a heating pad underneath him to help him to warm up. Larry soon arrived home after this, and Hannah told him she believed Andrew was okay now, but believed he must have worked himself into such a fit that he became cold. She got out her EMT and nursing books to see if someone could possibly throw themselves into shock and become cold. Hannah didn't think there was any need to call 911, as she had been in shock multiple times and been fine. She also looked up hypothermia and determined that Andrew was not suffering from it because he was not in a cold place. The Overtons decided to give him a warm bath, hoping it would help to warm him. Andrew was still not talking, except for repeatedly stating that he was cold. But while in the bathtub, Andrew started breathing funny, like he was congested. But believing it was due to shock, she got out a nebulizer, a device they used for another son when he had pneumonia. This device is used to help open up one's airways. After a couple of minutes, Andrew started to breathe a little better so they got him out of the bath and dressed him in sweatpants and a sweatshirt. Hannah described him at this point as, He was just moaning. He was, ugh, ugh, ugh. And it was very similar to my, my youngest had, had ammonia a few months before that. And the way he was acting was very similar to the way that my son was acting when he had pneumonia, just moaning, and just not really wanting to talk or anything. But he was, you know, he wasn't passed out. Instead of calling 911, Hannah decided to call a friend who was a paramedic and would give her advice when her children were sick. But she did not answer. Andrew started breathing funny again, so Hannah checked his vital signs, but they seemed to be normal to her. They did start to believe this was more than just getting himself overworked. They believed he must be sick and started discussing whether to take Andrew to the doctor. They did discuss calling 911, but they decided against this for two reasons. One, they did not have insurance. And two, Andrew's vital signs were allegedly normal and they wouldn't get lights and sirens if they called an ambulance but Andrew kept becoming less and less responsive, leading Hannah to realize this was a more serious situation. 
She tried calling her paramedic friend again, but no answer. So the Overtons got in the car and they started driving to UCC, an urgent care clinic. On the way, Hannah rode in the back seat with Andrew and called the adoption supervisor to ask if she could stop by their house and pick up the forms Andrew would need that she had forgotten. At a red light, Andrew stopped breathing. Hannah began CPR, and Andrew ended up vomiting in her mouth, but he did start breathing again. Larry called a pastor friend at this time to inform him they were headed to the hospital, but still, they did not call 911. When Hannah was asked later about this, she responded, How is calling 911 going to get us there any faster? We were at the light right straight from... We, we were at the closest light to a place where we thought had a crash cart and would be able to help us. When they pulled into the urgent care parking lot, Andrew stopped breathing again and his pupils were dilated. Larry rushed him into the clinic at around 5.17 p.m. on October 2, 2006. According to LVN, Dinah Zapata, she noted that the little boy was cool to the touch, did not have a pulse, his eyes were open, and his pupils were dilated. And according to Zapata, dilated pupils usually indicate that a person is brain dead. Andrew had no pulse, so Zapata called 911, while a pediatric doctor placed a bag mask, which covers the mouth and nose, on his face, and Hannah performed compressions to Andrew's chest. This made Andrew vomit. Zapata witnessed a large amount of vomit that had a strong odor and a reddish-brown color come out of the boy. She also observed a bruise on the left side of Andrew's lower ribcage, and he looked as though he had suffered a cardiac arrest. The paramedics arrived at 5.21 p.m., and then Zapata called Teresa Arkin, an ER nurse supervisor at Driscoll Children's Hospital, to notify her of what was going on. Teresa got there around 5.28 p.m. to find the little boy whom she described as very pale in color with a distended stomach. This is the statement she put in her records. I asked the woman when the child had his last meal, and she said right before coming to the clinic, he ate some chili. I asked if he had any allergies to the ingredient of chili, and she did not think so. There was some confusion as to the sequence that led up to the full arrest of this child, and so I had asked for some clarification. She said he ate the chili, and he was cold, and I gave him a blanket, and he vomited at home. One of the paramedics, John Dodge, noticed while cutting Andrew's pants what appeared to be burn marks on his leg along with some bruising and sores on his right elbow. He also saw that Andrew's pupils were dilated by five centimeters, which is consistent with someone who is dead on arrival. But since he was a child, they continued to work on him. At this point, the paramedics transferred Andrew to Svan, a clinic that was across the street. Andrew was dead when he arrived, and it took them 20 minutes to get him back. Dodge felt suspicious of this case, so he notified the police that there may be some form of child abuse going on. Police officer Raul Gomez was dispatched to Svan. 
While there, he observed some sores on Andrew's arms, along with scratches on his stomach and butt area. Another officer, Jesse Hernandez, observed several injuries to the boy, including the following. Bruising across the tip of his nose and down his nose, redness and scratches along his neck, chin area, and torso, boils or possible burns to his arm, and bruising on his buttocks and on his right knee. After observing the injuries, Officer Hernandez contacted Child Protective Services. Once Andrew was stabilized, he was transferred from Sworn to Driscoll and was put under the care of Dr. Alexander Rhoda, a pediatric critical care specialist. After assessing the boy, they gave him a CAT scan, which revealed Andrew had swelling of the brain, bleeding inside the brain, and bleeding around the brain. The doctor explained that the bleeding in the brain could have been caused due to some sort of trauma or due to high levels of sodium, which after getting the blood test back, Andrew had incredibly high sodium and chloride levels in his blood. So Dr. Rhoda sent off for more tests, stating, Your first reaction as you encounter the highest sodium reported in men is maybe, this is not right. I need to absolutely confirm that. The first blood test that Andrew's sodium level at 242 and his chloride level was 222. To reach this level of sodium, Andrew would have had to ingest 23 teaspoons of zatarans or six teaspoons of salt. Those levels were the highest he had ever seen in a patient and arguably, the sodium level was one of the highest ever reported. The second blood test puts his sodium level at greater than 250 and his chloride level around 200. Sodium levels should be between 135 and 145. Sodium intoxication would make someone have discomfort, changes in consciousness, changes in behavior, trouble breathing, loss of consciousness, seizures, and finally, cardiorespiratory arrest. The Overton's description of the timeline seemed unusual to Dr. Rhoda, whom stated, one, is why someone would give powder and water to a child. Second, is the fact that the report was that the difficulty started immediately after he drank the powder and water, and then the I am cold statement that the child supposedly made, and then trying to warm up the child by giving a bath, then taking the child to a clinic as opposed to an emergency department in full arrest. I am not convinced that the history I obtained represented the facts that occurred that night in their entirety. So for whatever reason, some of the information, you know, wasn't very forthcoming. There was something about the interview with the Overtons that made me think, you know what, maybe this is really just not everything that happened. Later on, the doctor stated, we have a child that was well until that afternoon, that had behavioral issues, that was having temper tantrums, that was then given something that is not to reward his behavior, probably to punish his behavior that then goes into cardiorespiratory arrest 
and before doing so has symptoms of drifting in and out of consciousness, difficulty breathing, which is probably an issue with the acid buildup in the body, and then arrests. By then, I have a very clear cause-relationship effect, as in things that happened prior to him arresting were directly responsible for him arresting. And the one thing that stands out is the fact that I have someone that told me that he was given something that he shouldn't have been given, water with chili powder. Knowing that it is very likely at the time, and now I know for sure, that the powder that was given could contain very high levels of salt. October 3rd, 2006, the evening after he was brought in, Andrew Bird passed away. The medical examiner, Dr. Ray Fernandez, ruled Andrew's manner of death homicide. CPS took the Overton's other children from the home and placed them in the care of relatives. And a few days later, Hannah was asked to come to the police station where she was interrogated by Detective Hess, who specialized in child abuse cases. Hannah agreed to talk to the detective without a lawyer present. This is audio from a part of that interview. People have been troubled that you were laughing during that interrogation. He started shaking and he stopped talking. <laughs> That's when I got scared and I called Larry. Called him and said, I don't know what's going on with Andrew, but you need to come home. He's freaking out. I think that's all I told him because I didn't know, I didn't know how to explain it. I put blanket, I put lots of blankets on him because he had said he was cold. <laughs> At first, I wasn't sure if he was just not talking to me because he was mad, you know. But at that point, he was still awake, <laughs> just not, you know, he was still breathing, he was still moaning, <laughs> he was still shaking. I went to school as an EMT, and then I had a baby. <laughs> going from memory. I got my books out while he's shaking. He's saying he's cold. What can it be? <laughs> That's very much a scared laugh. Five hours later, the interrogation ended with no confession. But that did not matter to Noasis Assistant District Attorney Sandra Eastwood, a self-declared child protection crusader who decided to charge Hannah Overton with capital murder which would mean, if convicted, Hannah would be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Larry Overton was also arrested, but ended up pleading guilty to criminally negligent homicide. He was sentenced to five years deferred adjudication, probation, and a $5,000 fine. Hannah Overton's trial, which was televised, started in August 2007. I used a lot of the testimony from this trial to explain the events that took place leading up to Andrew's death, so I will not be repeating that information. So here's a synopsis of the rest of the trial. Prosecution's star witness was Dr. Rhoda, and the defense felt they had no choice but to have Hannah Overton testify on her own behalf. The defense also brought Harvard-educated forensic pathologist Dr. Judy Melanick, to the stand. The doctor identified the sores on Andrew's body as being consistent with mosquito bites 
that had been excessively scratched. And on the issue of how all of the sodium had entered Andrew's system, the doctor said that in all probability, the child suffered from a rare eating disorder called pica. Children with this malady have an uncontrollable desire to consume inappropriate substances such as salt. The trial ended after three weeks, and it took the jurors 11 hours to find Hannah Overton guilty of capital murder. The jury was polled afterward, and all 12 members stated that they had found Hannah guilty of capital murder by omission for not acting quickly enough to save Andrew. None believed that she had poisoned him. But to find her guilty, they'd had to have believed that she knew he would die if she did not get him immediate medical attention. Y'all, the story is not over yet. Just two days after the verdict, the Overton defense team received a letter from Dr. Edward Cortez, whom had been the one to resuscitate Andrew before he was sent to the ICU. In the letter, he explained that he was scheduled to testify for the prosecution, but he was never called to the stand. Believing he was not called to the stand because in his opinion, Andrew's death was accidental. And on the stand, he would have testified that Andrew had been a hyperactive child who suffered from an autism spectrum disorder, as Dr. Cortez had studied Andrew's medical records. This would account for the boy's inappropriate eating habits obsessive scratching and picking, and head-banging. Cynthia Orr, John Rayleigh, and Gary Goldstein, three prominent appellate attorneys, took an interest in the Overton case. They filed an appeal alleging newly discovered exonerating evidence, ineffective legal representation at trial, and the withholding of exculpatory evidence from the defense by prosecutor Sandra Eastwood. But in 2009, the Texas Circuit Court of Criminal Appeals upheld the Overton capital murder conviction. In the spring of 2010, the appellate team petitioned to have access to the prosecution's file on this case. They wanted to know if the prosecutor was telling the truth when, before Hannah's trial, the defense team asked for the documents related to Andrew's stomach contents. Prosecutor Eastwood said no such report existed. When the appellate team got the case file, they found the gastric contents report. On top of that, the document showed that Andrew's stomach contents did not reveal elevated amounts of salt when he arrived at the urgent care clinic. They also discovered that Eastwood had planned on calling Dr. Moritz to the stand he waited days in the courthouse, but ended up having to return to Pittsburgh. And they even attempted to do a video deposition that was not completed due to time. Dr. Moritz worked at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, specializing in children's kidney diseases. In 2007, he had published a paper on accidental child salt poisoning cases. In this paper, he explained that a vast majority of these cases involved boys between the ages of one and six. 
had all been in foster care or from abusive homes and all suffered from the eating disorder, pica. In his expert opinion, he would have testified that Andrew's death had been accidental. Around the same time, they received a letter from Anna Jimenez, a former Nueces County prosecutor who worked with Eastwood on the Overton case. Jimenez wrote, I fear she, Eastwood, may have purposely withheld evidence that may have been favorable to Hannah Overton's defense. In April 2011, the appellate team petitioned the Texas Court of Appeals for an evidentiary hearing on the Overton case. And in February 2012, an appellate judge ordered the trial judge to hold this hearing, which began on April 24, 2012. At this hearing, they brought up all the people we had just discussed, along with testimony from forensic pathologist Dr. Judy Melanick, who said that because the medical examiner had failed to adequately analyze Andrew's hypothalamus and pituitary glands, his cause and manner of death conclusions were questionable. But then it was day three of this hearing, which included testimony from former prosecutor Sandra Eastwood. She had been fired in 2010 after informing the district attorney she had been romantically involved with a sex offender. She was also an alcoholic whom prosecuted Overton's trial under the influence of alcohol and prescription diet pills. On the stand, she said that her drinking and pill-taking had destroyed her memory of the Overton case. One month after the hearing, on June 1, 2012, the district judge issued his recommendation. In a 14-page opinion, he explained that he saw no new evidence that would have altered the outcome of Hannah Overton's murder trial. Writing that, the court concludes that all of this supposedly newly discovered evidence actually was clearly known and discussed at the time of the trial. The Overtons and their appellate team were shocked by the district judge's opinion, but they still had a sliver of hope, as the appeals court justices did not have to take the district court's recommendation. On September 18, 2014, in a 7-2 vote, Hannah Overton was granted a new trial. The judges cited problems associated with Prosecutor Sandra Eastwood and criticized Overton's trial attorneys for not calling to the stand a salt-poisoning expert. One of four options could be done by the Nuez County District Attorney. He could charge Overton again with capital murder file lesser charges against her, offer a plea deal, or simply dismiss the case. The prosecutor chose to try Hannah Overton again for capital murder. Hannah was granted bond of $50,000, and on December 16, 2014, which she posted and was released to await for her second trial. The Overtons appeared on the Dr. Phil show in February 2016, and in May 2017, the Nueces County District Attorney, Mark Gonzalez, 
officially declared Hannah Overton innocent in the death of her four-year-old son. On top of that, on March 7, 2018, the Texas Comptroller informed Overton that she would receive a check from the state in an amount of over $500,000 because she had been wrongfully convicted and behind bars for seven years. All right, y'all. I know this has been longer than usual, but it is the finale, and I have one more piece of information that I found out while researching this case, and I must share it. Hannah Overton was born in 1977 to an evangelical preacher, Reverend Benny Sines, and a homemaker, Lane Sines. In 1984, Hannah was seven years old when her father, Benny, was arrested, charged, and convicted of murder. He had murdered a 16-year-old girl, bludgeoning her to death and leaving her nude body at the edge of the water at South Padre Island. He was sentenced to 23 years in prison. I wish I could tell you all more information on this particular case, but after an extensive search, this is all I could find. Her mother, Lane Sines, made a name Applewhite, is the daughter of Marshall Applewhite, also known as Doe, who was the co-founder and leader of the cult Heaven's Gate. For those not familiar with this particular cult, Marshall and a nurse he met named Bonnie persuaded a group of 20 people from Oregon to abandon their families and possessions and move to eastern Colorado, where they promised that an extraterrestrial spacecraft would take them to the kingdom of heaven. They explained to their followers that human bodies were merely containers that could be abandoned in favor of a higher physical existence. But when the spacecraft never arrived, membership started to fall. Then the cult took another hit in 1985 when Bonnie died. In the early 1990s, Marshall started recruiting new members, and after the discovery of the comet Hale Bob in 1995, the members believed that an alien spacecraft hidden behind the comet was on its way to Earth. In March 1997, the comet was to pass by Earth, and when Hale Bob reached its closest distance to Earth, Marshall and 38 of his followers committed mass suicide. They all drank a lethal mixture and then laid down to die, hoping to leave their bodily containers, enter the alien spacecraft, and pass through Heaven's Gate into a higher existence. I am unaware of how close Lane Applewhite Sines was to her father as her parents divorced in 1968. This cult story is insane, and if you would like more information on it, I would highly recommend listening to the podcast Heaven's Gate, which takes a deep dive into the history of the cult told by family, followers, and experts. It is very interesting. That is it for season one of Crimes of a Decade, a Texas true crime podcast. Thank you so much for sticking with me this first season as I learned how to become a better storyteller and podcaster. 
I'm really enjoying this work and hope y'all are enjoying the stories. I want to say a huge thank you to Jim Fisher, True Crime, Texas Monthly, Appellate Court Records, and all the other great resources that helped me get all the information for this episode. I'll put a link to their work in the show notes. Season 1, Decade 2000 through 2009, is officially done. I'll be taking a little break, but we'll be back after a few weeks for Season 2, Decade 1970 through 1979. If you are enjoying this podcast, I would love for you to subscribe. And also, rate and review my podcast on iTunes. It helps get the word out about my show. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at crimesofadecade at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram at crimesofadecadepod and on Twitter at crimesofadecade. Thank you.